to Who All Gonna Be There, a podcast by artists for artists. We talk cash shit about everything, sometimes we get messy, and it all counts as art because we say so. I'm Mel, today I'm a woman, I guess, and black on all five sides, and an artist between the hours of 8.15 a.m. and 6.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Hours vary for national holidays. This week, I'm a double agent Zoom investigator working for Skype, an Instagram non-influencer, and I'm also a thought leader in the ongoing debate of Thin Mints versus Samoas. Are Samoas the, um, the ones that are the squares and just a sugar cookie? No, they're their coconut chocolate caramel. Ones. Okay, no, I do like Samoas. Samoas are good. Samoas, <laughs> no question over Thin Mints. Oh, okay. Well, that is a very bold statement. So. <laughs> um, I'm Maximiliano, and I have... Um, I guess make bold statements about Girl Scout cookies. And um, I was going to say intros are for the bourgeoisie, but now I just gave myself an intro. So, okay. There you go. <laughs> um, for everybody wondering at home how to subscribe uh, to be a Patreon, you can subscribe to be a Patreon of NTP. We have tons of great perks, which uh, include uh, supporting us, but also exclusive Patreon only podcasts and are now legendary. Patreon exclusive, long long running zine publication, Book of Sedition. NTP, we got an Etsy with all of our publications and our newest one, the Black Abbey zine from our Black Abbey residency with uh, Black Art Ecology of Portland, Charita Town. We have totes, we have buttons, we we give advice. Um, Subscribe to us on iTunes and all streaming platforms. Follow us at Nat Turner Project on the social medias. Got a question or comment? Want to confess your love of Melanie or me? Email us at natturnerproject0 at gmail.com because without the zero, it goes to some white lady on the East Coast. Word. <laughs> um, and you do have a comment, a YouTube comment, right, Max? I did. Oh, I did yeah. remember that <laughs> as I was reading it, that um, we, we have a YouTube comment. We have a YouTube. Um, MTV has a YouTube comment. Yeah, let me pull it up. It's juicy. <laughs> 
occasionally we get comments um, on our YouTube uh, where we post videos sometimes. And we yeah, just we, we used to yeah post our podcast on uh, YouTube, but I think we stopped doing it. Yeah. Um, so here's a comment from uh, who all gonna be there, episode one for black people in parentheses, while white people are there too with Ariella Tai part one. And then a YouTube commenter, Druish, is wondering, the Druish, uh-oh, white dude here too. So, that's a comment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you, Max. <laughs> I don't really have a comment for that, so. <laughs> so today, we are chatting it up with Ali Pezanoski brown about life, art, and perhaps one of my favorite things, printmaking. Who knows? We'll see. What's up, Allie? Hey, how are you? I had so much trouble keeping quiet during the Girl Scout cookies um, debate. Wait, do you um, have a stand on that? I do. I, I mean, obviously, Samoas and Thin Mints are the best. Uh, they're the two. Um, but Samoas were called, I think, Caramel Delights in Wisconsin. Oh. The, Samoa is not in the Midwest for some weird reason. So I've always like wondered why that was, but I agree Samoas are the champion. Although if you freeze Thin Mints, they're really awesome. That See, I've heard that too. I've never tried that, but my housemate actually freezes them too. So I don't know. <laughs> Super good that way. Yeah. <laughs> to, to add to that, um, I, I think, I mean, I, between Thin Mints and Samoas, I would go Samoas. Um, 10 times out of 10. Um, maybe oh. nine times out of 10, just because all the other times I'm meeting Samoa's, I'd eat a cinnamon. But my favorite Google Scout cookie is Tagalongs. And I love wow. Tagalongs. So I would still choose the Tagalong over all other Girl Scout cookies. Which so. one is that? It's the chocolate with the peanut butter on the Oh, inside. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And okay. that one's delicious frozen too. I've heard tech, I've heard people claim Tagalongs, but my answer to that is, why don't you just go to the store and buy some Reese's? Like, if you're going to get tagalongs. Well, I, I feel like I feel like that the idea that you would just give peanut butter and chocolate to Reese's, like Reese's is the only thing that can do <laughs> peanut butter and chocolate. I think it, it's it's I don't even know how to begin to unpack that. <laughs> well, and I just saw um, Reese's that's only peanut butter. Like it's a peanut butter outside with a oh. peanut butter inside. I'm um, really into the Snack It. I don't know if you guys know. It's a Facebook group where it's just discussion about snacks. And um, so there are like any new, new uh, invention on the snack market, they post about it. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm going to join that. <laughs> <laughs> but what is... I don't understand this concept of Reese's with no chocolate, though. Yeah, it's like um, it's like a almost like melty peanut butter coating instead of the chocolate, and then so it's peanut butter with peanut butter inside. I don't know. I haven't tried it, so <laughs> I must know more about this. Um, to respond to Max's comment <laughs> regarding. <laughs> Do Reese's not deserve the crown? I mean, who's doing it better out here in these streets than Reese's? I just, I just don't think one one entity should have that much power to to be the <laughs> voice of peanut butter and chocolate together. Okay, that's that's wild to think. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
All right, fine. We'll move on because we're not going to settle this. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so a little bit about Allie. Allie grew up in a family dedicated to the arts, education, and social justice, which led her to focusing on film and video and sociological studies at Northwestern University, where she earned a BS in communications. For the next decade, she worked as a producer and coordinator for various documentaries and also worked on arts media projects and events with a focus on fundraising and community building. She received her master's in critical theory and creative research from Pacific Northwest College of Art and had a stopover in Hong Kong as a Fulbright scholar. Ali is currently the executive director of the Independent Publishing Resource Center, or as we all know it, IPRC, here in Portland. Her essays have been published in the Leonardo Music Journal and Bitch. So, um, <laughs> It's weird to hear it all read out like that, just to be like stone cold face. <laughs> yep, that's what I did. <laughs> that is a lot. I, I honestly, before this and before we like researched you, I didn't know that you were a Fulbright scholar. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's not like really a thing you <laughs> like drop in. Like I'm, a, I was a Fulbright scholar, um, but no, it was a really. Um, I just. Uh, wanted to do a research project in a different part of the world and so it was really really exciting to to get to do that um yeah and uh i have a couple of friends who were there with me who are just like doing such cool work so that was another amazing perk of like um going is just like meeting people who had like interesting project ideas and and had the same kind of curiosity so um the closest my closest friends um jane and helen helen does um some human rights work mm -hmm. and then jane is a poet so i kind of in the work that i do have run into her and she's come here for poetry readings and it's just so awesome to watch like her poetry um career take off mm -hmm. um yeah and then to have that really unique experience that we got to have together in hong kong was just awesome now, were they there as Fulbright scholars as well, or? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, um, it was the two of them, myself and one other person. And then there were some um, folks there who were um, doing uh, English teaching as well. Um, but we were, we were the researchers and um, my, my project was sort of a failed project, but it's one that I like have come to back to so many times in my life um, and just like, the the skills of like learning how to like set your own schedule and set your own parameters around just like having a curiosity about something was really rad yeah how long were you there i was there for a year um and the project that i worked on um i was studying this phenomenon called um well, it's called hikikomori in Japan, but um, in Hong Kong, they refer to it as um, status zero. So this idea of um, teenagers who were um, dropping out of school, not working, and just kind of uh, living in their bedrooms, playing video games, only kind of coming out um, to get like a cup of noodle at the 7-Eleven, and then otherwise just like breaking off from um, society and so I was uh, connecting with social workers and just interviewing them to kind of find out like um, what was happening for them or why they were that why they were um, choosing to live that way um, and kind of the theory I developed was just that it was 
I saw them as sort of like um, canaries in the coal mine of, of kind of like having the sensitivity to things that were kind of off in society um, as far as just like overcrowdedness or the ways that um, kids very early on in middle school were getting tracked into like high performing schools or low performing schools and then it just affected um, their economic possibilities and um, and so kind of just deciding to opt out of the system altogether and like obviously this is not just a thing that happens in Hong Kong like I could have been like looking at this back where I'm from in Wisconsin or anywhere but just I feel like um, going to another place and being able to see it from an outsider's perspective was just like um, I was able to kind of like see things a little more clearly. But. And what year were you there? Um, it was 07, 08. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's so it was like the, the 10 year anniversary of um, it no longer being a colony too. Mm -hmm. So that was like a really interesting time to be there as well. And just to also follow the things that are happening there now. Yeah. yeah. The people you study, were they like, did they start forming like online communities or like part of like communities that way or they weren't participating in any type of communities? Yeah, no, um, they were. And that was like such a cool thing to learn from the social workers that I connected with is that they started playing video games to like get to know kids that they might be able to help. Um, so it was like also like a part of their um, outreach or therapeutic process was to start gaming in order to find um, kids to work with um, and just also learning a little bit about like um, how like game addictions are treated in different places like I, th I think there are like some pretty intense like um, treatment centers in in uh, mainland China around um, gaming addiction and just like how much that's changed now that all of us are like um, quarantined and like mm -hmm. um, I think I'd recently heard somebody saying that they're kind of really looking at that game research again and like how actually people who play Animal Crossing are statistically happier <laughs> than people who do but like they were I think they're like um, predisposed to like higher rates of happiness already so they weren't sure if it was corollary but yeah just kind of I, th I think um, th people are thinking about these things differently even since I was in Hong Kong but yeah so yeah. did like COVID and like quarantine did that like make you think about um, all the stuff you were researching and learning in like Hong Kong oh so much so and I mean I think um, like when I was in Hong Kong. I was pretty young and it was like the first time I was living outside of the the country and away from family and so like I got really anxious about like being <laughs> on my own and like ideas about like wanting to create this project and and um, fears about it not working out. So like I also like at that time was like feeling very connected to some of the the youth I was like interviewing and what they were experiencing. Um, so I think that's always kind of been on my mind or like these ideas about like um, being an introvert who loves people and um, but then especially um, yeah during uh, during um, kind of the pandemic and, and quarantining um, in a way I don't know, 
being that way, um, I felt a little more comfortable than I think a lot of people did. You know what I mean? Um, just this idea of, and I'm really, really lucky because I get to mostly work from home. And um, so like, I definitely went through the um, bread making phase and the, um, <laughs> that everybody else went through and um, went through. I've, I've, there's just been so many different phases, but yeah. like um, my, my office is in the kitchen and my partner is on a, is a, like has a sales job where he's answering phones all the time from the same kitchen space. And then my um, stepson's in seventh grade. So he's like taking breaks from virtual school to come get snacks all the time. So we've just definitely been <laughs> all on top of each other, but like coping fairly well, I think. Um, I, I know my coping strategies are, um, just to get into problem solving mode and overwork mode. So I was just like kind of okay because I was just jumping into that mode of things. And I'm definitely now in this new phase of like feeling nervous about um, like people wanting to get to nor normal really quickly and just like recognizing that like in some ways, um, the overwork ways that we are before the pandemic was didn't feel very healthy to me either um and and also my overwork way of being for right now like i've been getting migraines i can't look at the screen as much as i i, th I feel like in a weird way the pandemic has made me like try to find healthier ways of being um and think about things um, I don't know, how has it been for you? Have you all been going through like phases too in, in all of this? Oh yeah, like I, I've definitely been through many different kind of stages of this whole thing. I think at this point, I'm, I'm just kind of on mental autopilot in a lot of ways. Because um, there was this point where I was just working, working, working all the time. And because I'm working at home, there's like no separation. So it's not like I could get in my car and drive home, like the work is still there. So the temptation to, to overwork was just ridiculous. Um, yeah. So I had to go through like this reevaluation period where I had to decide that like, you know, what are, what are my actual work hours and when do I just kind of put it away and like rest? So I'm still figuring out that out right now, but that's kind of where I'm at <laughs> with it. Yeah. So. Yeah, I feel like I had similar things. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I feel like I've been all over the place with, like, quarantine and COVID. Um, I think in the beginning, it was, like, kind of easy because, like, I do, like, chilling at my house. So um, it was, like, okay, cool, like, an excuse to chill at my house. And now um, I don't have to feel guilty about it or whatever. Um, so that was cool. And then, um, yeah, I am, like, anxious about um, this rush to get back to normal and stuff like that then like what does that mean and then um does that mean like we haven't like because then some people will be like oh yeah there will be like these permanent changes like you know some people will never go back to like offices or whatever um but then some other people are like you know it seems like that nothing will be like learned or like nothing will like there won't be any permanent changes and then like a few months from us going back to normal will be like what did that even happen or so i am like wary of that i am wary about like the um the short uh the short-term memory of like society and stuff like that especially in a, like a capitalistic 
society of go 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 and forget for, for forget 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 um so yeah so i, I feel i feel um maybe like a slow um disappointment to the return to normal but i guess trying to accept it like everything else <laughs> no i've been thinking about that a lot lately too just because i don't know like recognizing how different it is it's been for different people in different places you know what i mean so like i've been trying to stay really attached to what's happening for my family in wisconsin and then i have family in texas too and oh. um so like yeah, it's I'm just seeing how um, how much Texas has gone through in just the last few weeks, um, and uh, yeah, um, it's. I have it's to weird. ask how how is your family in Texas right now? Are they okay? They are okay. Yeah, um, I uh, one household didn't run out of power, so everybody was able to um, kind of band together and, and go stay at that person's house and um they were doing they were doing okay um i think it was it, it just pretty extreme what was happening though in in their overall community or just like seeing what was happening in their city um we just talked really quickly over instagram but um did check in with them and they're okay but yeah very strange um and then just like wisconsin um I don't know, it was really weird to hear um, in like the first couple months of, of COVID, um, my aunt, she's in her 50s, she's lived in Milwaukee her whole life. Um, she's, she and her husband are incredibly social people. So she knew every single person who died <laughs> with COVID in like the first month um, because they were all black men of a certain age, her generation and just like trying to hold that for her and and just like recognizing how fortunate I, I was and like in this immediate Portland um, area was versus like what my family member was going through. It was just very strange. Yeah. yeah. It is it is this weird sort of dichotomy because like I know Max has family in Texas. Um, my family lives in Atlanta and in Atlanta they're acting like it's not even an issue so it's pretty terrible um i've been kind of on eggshells with my like checking in with my family ever since this thing started um but it it is it does feel like a kind of privilege to be living here in portland where there seems to be some sort of awareness and people are actually wearing masks and like even like the private businesses are making sure that they're following like you know protocol so that's yeah. been nice that's something i definitely don't take for granted so yeah no and it, it is strange that i feel like in wisconsin it's it's political lines like mm -hmm. uh, most of my family are taking it serious and like their pockets but then they will go to a spot that where people aren't taking it seriously at all and yeah it's harder to avoid and you you mentioned that your partner is also working remote as well like how are y'all navigating that like do you have issues like i know i have issues with my housemate where we have to take calls at the same time and like you can't be in the same room with someone else so like how did, how is that working for you um it's it's been hard it's been a kind of when the weather's nice like kind of go outside or because we have like a patio area or um we'll sometimes have to have a meeting from my bedroom which feels really weird to like um be in bed like 
trying to have a meeting. Um, and especially because uh, his job is in sales, so he's like constantly making phone calls. Um, and so like, and sometimes he just can't, like he has to pick up, he can't um, let it go. So there have been a couple times where I've been in a meeting and had to run to a different room um, to accommodate for it. So it, it, it definitely has been something to navigate. Um, and, but we're, we're holding it together. We haven't gotten into too many fights. <laughs> we're making it through. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, how are you doing in terms of like, I don't know, like your, your emotional well-being with all of this. Like we're, we're about to hit the one year anniversary of all of this, um, yeah. which is insane to think about. I can't believe it's been a year. So like, how are you like coping with all of that? Yeah, I mean, it's up and down. I think about being in like this uh, sort of numbing or like not, and I think I was there for a while. And then I was like, I, I need, I really, I, when we got to like the 400,000 mark, I was like, I really want to be able to feel this. I want to like, cause that number just feels so huge and I couldn't really um, conceptualize it. So like a lot of what I do is kind of to write my way into understanding something. Um, so I just was like, I'm trying to look at like, um, other things that were 400,000, just like kind of trying to think about this number. Um, and I almost feel like I, I cracked it open too much because then I was like feeling things like uh, really intensely around just like, um, so like uh, I'm in a point right now where I'm, I'm trying to just um, bring it back and just think about like, um, the things I'm, I feel grateful for from this year too, because I just think there has been a lot of like um, honesty in the way people talk about things. And I especially feel like incredibly grateful for um, the Portland art community and the IPRC um, community that I'm a part of, because I feel like people are allowing each other to talk about these things. And like, especially with my team, like we don't like shy away from like, how are you this week? I, what do you need to be able to like, keep on with your job? Do you need time? Like, um, just like this conversation around like, how does our art and our work and our community um, building and like, how do these things like all kind of come together in a, in a holistic way where we can be honest about where we're coming from. So I think I've found a lot of um, comfort in being able to just kind of openly talk about that with the people that I'm like working with and around. Um, so I think I've like lately um, have been just leaning into a lot of um, gratitude for, for the people that like I get to work with and the people in like, I think that they're part of your and my and our community. Um, yeah, just um, how sort of what you were talking about with like Portland and how Portland has reacted to this. Like there's a lot wrong <laughs> with like how Portland uh, reacts to things, but there's a lot really amazing, like just the um, mutual aid efforts and like yeah. just the way people are thinking about it. Like I do, um, so I think emotionally 
dealing with the year anniversary, I've just been thinking about those things a lot. Like the people I know that I can be reaching out to um, and who like show up for each other. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the IPRC has been mentioned and, um, but could you talk a little bit about what the IPRC like is, what it does, and then also like what you do um, at the IPRC? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the IPRC, the Independent Publishing Resource Center, um, it's an arts nonprofit that's focused on independent publishing. So creative writing and experimental writing, we focus a lot on poetry, prose, art book, comics, and then printmaking and zines. Um, we have letterpress um, equipment, risograph equipment, um, screen printing, and then we also do um, book arts and book binding. Um, and it's an organization that's been around since the late 90s. Um, I think it started in 98. Um, and it was founded um, in the upstairs of Reading Frenzy, which was an independent bookstore um, that was founded by uh, Chloe Udaly. And so Chloe and Rebecca Gilbert started the upstairs, which is just that a lot of the people who were coming to buy zines and independent books were wanting a place to be able to make their own. Um, and so they started the zine library upstairs and the letterpress studio. And then it's kind of just expanded since there. Um, and it was really around like collective sharing of resources uh, for print and um, for um, creative writing and uh, just sort of this idea around having um, voices that were vital um, and important, um, but maybe were lesser heard being heard. And so um, early on, there was a lot of outreach to, to um, houses, communities, and um, LGBTQ um, teens and um, incarcerate, incarcerated writers, um, and just this idea of like trying to get voices out and sharing your work. Um, and it's actually my three-year anniversary with the organization um, Sunday. Um, and I'm the, yeah, <laughs> executive director. Um, and so a lot of what I do is around like this um, stability and the st strategy uh, around the organization. Um, so we have like this main value of accessibility. We want people to be able to um, participate and make even if they can't afford to. Um, and we kind of want our relationships to be um, anti-transactional, I guess is how I would put it. Um, so we want our primary relationship to be um, about relationships rather than money. Um, so we purposefully don't charge as much as things cost. And so then there, there's like this um, balance of like operating within a capitalist system. And, and, and so then my job is to do a lot of the advocacy around the IPRC to collect resources and the things that we need so that we can keep it being an affordable resource. So what that looks like is I do a lot of grant writing. Um, I do a lot of talking to people, trying to build relationships, trying to kind of make the case for the IPRC and why it should be an affordable, um, easy resource for everybody to have. Um, and then I also um, lead our team and make sure that they have what they need in order to kind of keep pushing and trying to be the most creative and uh, 
best resource we possibly can for as many people as we can. Um, and let me see what else. I'm kind of looking at my notes to make sure I hit everything. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Oh yeah, so just kind of like this idea that um, if you're a member of the IPRC, you're kind of investing in this collective ability for everybody to have it, even if um, they can't afford it. Um, and then like our team really does look at ourselves as like the current um, stewards of the space and just trying to listen to um, what our community is telling us um, the, the space and the resources need to look like and make that happen. Um, you mentioned that like some of the major tenets of IPRC are you know, non-transactional relationships and accessibility. And I'm just, I'm wondering, you know, as, as Max and I also try to navigate the Portland arts community as NTP um, with an interest in equity and accessibility as well, like, do you find that you kind of have to revisit those tenants and sort of rework um, the structure of IPRC, um, like from year to year or month to month or whatever to, to remain like, faithful to those priorities or is it something that is kind of like a well-oiled machine at this point that sort of runs on that by itself? That's really interesting. Yeah, no, I think we're constantly thinking about it. Um, mm -hmm. I think especially um, since we're, we have this nonprofit non status of like, you know, legally with the IRS having to, you know, um, stick to specific rules. I just think of a, about an example. Um, well, I just want to say, like, I feel like there have been so many mutual aid efforts that have happened, like, um, since the pandemic that have just been really quick about being able to serve people in this awesome way um, that I think that really uh, inspires us and like makes us want to like up what we're able to do um, because we do understand that there's kind of this like bulky thing that can happen with nonprofits where you're just about sustaining yourself rather than being um, being the best resource that you can be to the community. So we definitely like are constantly thinking about that. And just as an example, um, over the summer, we, um, well, because of the uh, protests that were happening after the murder of George Floyd, we started doing a lot more free printing. And especially because people weren't able to come in to the space to do printing, we were doing printing for people. Um, and we were doing it for a lot of BIPOC organizers. Well, some of our members and um, BIPOC organizers came to us um, wanting to do a lot of printing around the Teresa Rayford campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and because we're a nonprofit, we have all these rules about like um, not supporting um, political campaigns um, but which is sort of I'm just gonna say it's sort of shitty because yeah, definitely. Uh, you know there are other candidates who have the resources to get their printing done you know easily um, so it disadvantages a candidate who doesn't have those resources who would come to a resource like ours to do work like that, you know what I mean? And, but then we're not able to do as much as we would want to um, because of our status um, with, with the IRS. So we, um, what we tried to do was we tried to have it be like, well, we would allow any of our members to do any 
political printing that they would want to do in our space. So it would be open to any candidate, which is kind of how we allowed it to happen in our space. And that like discounts we provided would be discounts we would provide. And you know what I mean? So, but there was just like a definite like um, amount of thought that we had to put into like what we were able to do um, and have impact in our community, which is what we want to do and kind of follow what our community members are saying they need us for and um, yeah and also just like this this huge value we have of um, just tearing down hierarchies that keep people from making um, and just wanting there to be like something for working class artists who maybe can't like buy the equipment that they want to use or can't have like just disposable income towards um, materials or education or and just like being being present for for people I think that's wild that like because of your 501c3 status you can't you can't advocate politically I don't think there's any maybe I'm biased but I don't think there's anything more political than providing printing resources for people who don't otherwise have access. I, I mean, I didn't even get to come to printmaking until I was 35 because of accessibility issues, which is ridiculous. Like, I don't know, that's, that's insane. <laughs> right, well, and we've just found like more and more, like just the, the need for like information to be able to be spread like through print, like um, C3PO um, is the, the Ted Village is a, is a neighbor of ours. And so we've just started doing weekly free printing for them for just like the, the materials they need to spread to their community members to just have their, their, um, neighborhood run in the way it needs to um and just the fact that like um you know they were relying on phones and computers when so many people don't have access to phones and computers and then i'm just so glad that they came to us and that we're now able to like do printing for them so that like more people can understand what's happening um within their community yeah. but those sort of things yeah no it's it's absolutely it's it was it's been a really interesting learning period for us and just like figuring out like uh, how far we can go and with having like an impact but um no i i i think your question about like whether like renewing our mission and our values is something that's just like a well-oiled machine i think it has to continue to be um questioned and i um i feel like you get in trouble when you stop questioning it like that you think you have it all figured out and that um the way you do it the way you've done it is just going to work forever um like i think um when i came into the organization you know um the IPRC had uh, in, the rent had increased by 300%. And so there was just this question about like, there was a quick move and this question about like, how are we going to be able to stabilize? And um, because, you know, it's not easy to move all of that equipment and all of the zines. And, and there was like a certain amount of um, financial instability. Um, and I think it kind of was a great moment because there were a lot of things that were 
able to be rewritten for like me coming in um, and people were being really honest with us. So I think like one of the first things I did coming in was doing like informal surveys and then also we had a written survey and an online survey just trying to get uh, get a feel for what um, we weren't delivering on or where people needed us that we we weren't showing up and I think that um, there was this sort of creation of the IPRC where it, where it was serving a Portland need and then that needed to be looked at again um, because there is sort of this like 90s zine culture that can be very white um, and sort of like punk vibe um, that we definitely wanted to look at and see if we could be a place that felt more welcoming and more just open for the multitudes of ways that people might want to use us. Yeah. yeah. So I guess to follow up on that, what do you think like um, the IPRC, like the impact of the IPRC has like been on um, the trajectory or the um, path that like zine culture has taken? Do you think like if people think of like Portland zine culture now, they're not thinking of like white 90s like punk things or um what yeah i guess what what is like current portland zine culture yeah no i do th think it's um it's changing in a way that i really love and i definitely credit um uh women of color zines i think that that's an uh, awesome group that kind of has and um helped in that development and the portland zine symposium mm -hmm. and i um, just think about like a few people I know in that community, like Gita, Gita Lewis and Amnesia and um, Maria is a, a librarian at Reed who started a zine library there. And I just adore her. She's a Milwaukee native with me. So I feel like a kindred <laughs> spirit with her. Um, and then just thinking about um, books with pictures and um, some of the folks who work out of there. And obviously you, Melanie, and um, just like, I do think there, there are a lot of, um, zine writers of color. Oh, I also want to mention Kashina, who's a, um, an IPRC volunteer who um, has a, oh, I'm, I'm blanking out, I'm blanking on her zine um, collection, but she does, uh, she prints with um, Brown Recluse Distributing mm -hmm. and, and Vaux too, and the work that Vaux does. They're just like, yeah, I think there are a lot of, um, zine creators who are changing the feeling of it right now um and just also this the thing that's happening that there are so many like um high schoolers who are have like started interning with us who are or who are really interested in the format of zines as well like that seems to be um one of the writing formats that just like really translate well to younger people as well so feeling really excited about them. I actually just watched the uh, Amy Poehler zine movie that just came out on Netflix. I don't know if you all heard about this. Um, gosh, what is it called? Oh, it's called Moxie. And oh, I think, yeah, yeah. And it's just, it, it's really sweet. And it's like, it's a teen, teen movie around like feminist zine making. And um, 
they do sort of talk about like the pitfalls of like the the riot girl period which you know there were so many good things that came out of it but then there was also just like a a sort of like um white or lack of intersectionality and the feminism around um that scene and so they kind of talked about it a little bit but it's like really sweet to see <laughs> um netflix teen movies that are <laughs> focusing on zine making as this like um thing that can be shared between like an older generation and a younger generation as well. Yeah. Um, I've been like, yeah, this isn't something I've like um, looked into or would know it if it exists, but could imagine that it does exist. Is there like, um, as like, right, as like zine lifetimes like extend as like zines like exist for longer and longer, is there like becoming like a zine collectible like scene? Is there like a second market? For like zine reselling or do like some zines from like 30 years ago are now like highly coveted or something the really funny thing that I've, i'm seeing is that universities are starting them all over the place like zine libraries and and actually um multnomah county library um has a huge zine selection too um so uh i don't know so much about like the um the reselling aspect of it but um for sure in like an academic setting. And then it was pretty funny, um, a production designer from the show Shrill, like came through our zine library and ganked a of <laughs> zines to have just in, in the, um, the background of scenes. Um, so that was, that was a pretty funny thing that happened. Um, and speaking of like just the connections, um, we, there is a person named Beatrix who is, um, runs a place called Zine Coop in Hong Kong. And she lived in Portland and was working at IPRC and then went back to Hong Kong and, and started Zine Coop. And um, we've built a relationship. So we were able to send a collection over to a zine festival that just happened in Hong Kong, which was really cool. So there does seem to be like, um, also like this kind of global interest in, in zine writing that um, the IPRC has been able to be a part of just because they have, we happened to be in Portland in the, the 90s when um, there was another resurgence because I, I don't, that wasn't even the first one, but um, that was like a strong uh, period of zine interest. Yeah, it's been interesting to learn about. I think that's a really good seg into talking a little bit about the uh, BIPOC Artist and Writer Residency, which started yeah. three years ago, is that right? Cause you're on- Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, it, I kind of, that was like the thing I was like, gotta make this happen here, so. Can you talk it's a little my, bit- My anniversary about, and yeah, oh, sorry. No, no problem. Can you talk a little bit about like how that came to be? Um, Cause I remember when the first, the, the call came out for the first one and I remember thinking, oh, wow, it's about time. Something like this was definitely needed um, within this community. <laughs> um, and I just remember there being like this buzz around it and so many people were excited about like applying. And then like that first um, group of artists, y'all chose some pretty heavy hitters like Sharita Town, Intasar, Abioto, Jay Dodd. Like that was, it's just, it, it's an amazing program, which um, full disclosure, I was a part of for the second round. So, um, but yeah, just like what came, like what was the impetus that led to that? 
Um, and then, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, kind of like talking about um, this period of time that the IPRC was in where it was like this could go away, um, but like not wanting to figure out what was like the true like center of the IPRC and that made it um, something worth saving and worth kind of like um, figuring out what form it should go into in the future. Um, the the two main staff members that were there during this transition were Harper Quinn and John Akira Harold. And so they were going through um, a process of auditing um, the organization with um, arts workers for equity. Um, it was a cohort group that were kind of looking at issues of, um, you know, just how, white Portland can be and whether um, arts nonprofits were rising to the task of really supporting artists of color. Um, so they were sort of going through this process and thinking about these things a lot um, before I before I um, came to the IPRC. Um, but then I um, was previously at Caldera uh, Arts as um, the grant writer there. And um, we were also going through um, a process of looking at how uh, our programs were run and if we were um, as inclusive as we should be. And I just remember having a lot of conversations with um, Maisie, who ran the uh, residency program there, about just some, some really great ideas that they were de developing, talking about how so much of the work of being an artist isn't supported, <laughs> like that development work, that time of making, you're, you don't get paid for until your like the product is done um so just this idea ideas about re, um, artist residencies that were like paying people for that work but then also just recognizing that a lot of um residencies uh were like starting to be more mindful about um making sure that artists of color were well represented in in the cohorts but that there was also a major need for residency cohorts that were only artists of color because there's a certain kind of um, cross pollination and support that happen when um, artists of color are in residency together. And I think Sharita was really involved with Caldera's um, golden spot residencies like with the Ford Foundation. Um, so just like working on the grant side of that stuff, I was really learning a lot from um, Sharita's work and from Maisie's work. Um, and so then when I um, started the executive director job at um, the IPRC and was just having a lot of conversations with community members, I mean, I think the first um, IPRC event I went to, um, Amiza was there and Simon Satello, and they were like, there's work you need to do here. <laughs> um, and I just feel so grateful um, to the two of them for being that honest with me. Um, because I think I, I went into the organization like there is work to do. And um, then with the uh, just the community surveys we were doing, it just reinforced that um, you know, just in general, the writing community and printmaking community of Portland is pretty white, but then also the IPRC specifically um, had work to do. So I think the um, the residencies came from that background um, and from conversations that 
I was having with John and Harper, and then also um, our board member Lauren Wade um, was really like helpful in just constructing the the design of the program. Um, and you know, you were saying like the heavy hitters that were in the first round. Um, that really came from like um, it felt really important that the the kind of jury process was um, artists of color who are from Portland who um, who were reading the applications and who were looking at the work samples and um, also were so like um, we we designed the program but then stepped away and like I would be in the the room while the the um, jury was talking to just like facilitate or help or to interject that like the IPRC has these values of like skill sharing have has these values of like um, hybrid like image text artwork printmaking and uh, experimental writing but then that they were the ones making the de decisions about um, and really wanted it to be um, kind of op open-ended in it just being a commitment that the organization was going to make into the artists of color community in Portland. Like it just felt like it wasn't enough to say like, we're, we're inclusive, we're more welcoming without having like a financial, like solid um, way to back that up. Um, so that's really what the, what the residency program was built from. And, and to your question about um, what you were talking about before, uh, about like, do these things feel solid and smooth running? Yeah. <laughs> like, do they just run by themselves? I think even in the first two years of the artist residencies and, and COVID threw another wrench in it, but like, we've really been like, um, I don't know if it's just, my personality leading this but I don't think anything's ever done like I am always like questioning things and I'm always like uh want to see if it can be done better so we're talking about like ways that we can um have more support for artists and residents how we can have opportunities where we ask the artists and residents to invite their friends to participate in um, skill sharing so that like more people can be a part of it if there are ways that um, there are like programs or classes or tr things that we should be doing that we're not doing. Like um, I, we always just really love to have those conversations, um, myself and then the team. I mean, as a former resident, I have to say that like, even in the middle of COVID, y'all were amazingly accommodating. Oh, like, good. <laughs> yeah. like the fact that you gave me a letterpress like demo via zoom or like that's a, that was amazing like there's no other way i would have learned in these circumstances so yeah i'm just i'm excited to see what you all do with this and like where it goes um because it just seems to be getting better and better from from my perspective I don't know. well and i um there's so much i want to say and then I'm, i sometimes try to like back myself up and be like this is not solid yet so but just there there are conversations that i'm really excited about about like um how artists all around portland and how spaces all around portland can support each other and then like this idea of it not being like um 
just within the walls of the IPRC, but just this like idea of like all of these resources around the city that like maybe only certain people know about because they have worked to get to know people or just like I um I like feel very uncomfortable with the idea that like people only get resources if they have the clout to get you know what I mean or there's like um I I just I just think that they're like the creative urge is in everybody and that like everybody should be have have access to it if they want it um and just like more I'm more curious about like um what the city could look like if everybody got what they needed um, and what sort of things, um, how to make that happen with the framework that exists and the things that we can tear down and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a conversation that seems to be cropping up a lot lately in terms of like thinking bigger and these like established, the idea of these established um, kind of organizations like IPRC and others around the community building this kind of internal like I don't know this this way of internally linking up with each other um, to to build like these resource sharing these skills sharing like networks I don't know it's an interesting idea um, yeah really amazing and I think that if any city could do it it would be Portland so <laughs> I'm hopeful. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, I think like um, uh, when I was starting at the IPRC, um, like in the weeks, um, was around the same time. Uh, you all know, in other words, I think that's yeah. what it's called, the feminist bookstore. And I think um, they were going through like a thing um, with like being sort of a white feminist organization that then was handed over to a community of uh, or, or, or organizers of color to um, run. And I just remember reading their letter when they disbanded where they were like, it's not possible. You cannot turn a ship that's going one way. Um, you cannot, ref um, you can't, I guess, what's the word, like reform or, and so like, um, I found that really, really fascinating. Um, and as I was like going to the IPRC, I was like, well, I'm going to try, <laughs> like, is this the way that I kind of thought of it was just like, there, there is like a core mission that's really powerful and there are these resources and equipment and these things that it has and like, how can we get it out to people? Yeah, yeah no, I, I agree with all of that. I think it's really interesting, um, as you and Melanie have both said that of recent conversations that I feel like are like hitting on this and um, this idea of like thinking bigger um, of um, doing something in a different way or a newer way or also this idea that like um, yeah like maybe like other people like people like who are happy with the status quo don't want you to think bigger or um, don't want you to think in these other possible ways um, and then um, this is kind of like tangential but I feel like it's still to the point <laughs> it'll get there um, I was I was I was rewatching uh, Godfather Part One last night, um, and I was just like I was just so because like you know you know that like Michael's gonna be the one that does all the stuff, but I was so impressed by like from the very beginning um, how Michael was like already coming to be like oh we can play the game differently, and everybody was like no we can't do that we can't kill we can't kill a police officer or we can't like wipe out the whole five families like everything he like suggested was like no that's not possible, but then he was like coming and like 
having all these new ideas and like changing everything up. Um, so yeah, I think um, game change. <laughs> I, I, I'm a little uncomfortable with that analogy um, because Michael Corleone was not the most sympathetic narrative figure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, but then, cause, I, see, because he, he says the same thing, or like Kay says the same thing to him. Where he's like, Michael, you're so naive to think like that you don't like have men killed or have people killed, you know, like like sen like um saying that you could have been like a senator or a politician. She's like, No, okay, you're naive for thinking they don't have people killed. So I mean that's true. But and then like you, we've said in other episodes where it's a post post ethical world. So we're just in and out. We're just in and out, Melanie. <laughs> Okay, I mean, if we want to stretch this analogy as far as it can go, Michael Corleone had to wear the face of like these institutions that he was critiquing in order to play that game. Is that something that you think that organizations who are about equity have to take on? Like they have to wear that mask of I think, like, I think, I think more so, I mean, I think everything's shifting all the time, but I think that has been like a role that NTP has played. Um, we're like well, a buffer, you know, okay. the NTP has a lot of buffers. Um, you know, the <laughs> NTP organization has a lot of buffers. And I think, yeah, you have to be a buffer sometimes. That's so interesting. Yeah. I love The Godfather, though, too. Or, like, I was, like, really into The Godfather growing up. Just, like, the orange motif. I'm so curious about that and, like, want to realize what, or want to figure out what that's about. But just oranges pop up all the time. Are there, wait, there's a whole motif? I can only think of one scene. Did I miss a thing? Well, okay, so I was a film student, so, like, I, I geek out on this, but, like, um, yeah, when he, uh, when uh, Vito Corleone, the dad, when he's, like, um, going to do the big, um, when he gets rid of the original gangster, he's, like, walking through this parade scene, yeah. and there's a, um, a crate of oranges, and he grabs one of the oranges that he, like, oh. as he's going to do the, the murder, <laughs> and then I, there's also when he, when it's, like, um, gosh, why am I blinking? Marlon Brando, yeah. he's, like, doing the orange in his teeth when he, with his he, grandson. And that's right before he, like, passes away, like, right before he dies. Yeah. I, and so right before um, he the assassination attempt, he's buying oranges. Oh wow! I totally missed all of that. Okay. Like, do you know what it means? Like I I don't know what it's supposed to mean. Huh. Oh, do I know? I don't know what it means. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know there was an orange uh, thing until you brought it up, but now it's making me think of all the moments where there's oranges. But um, now I have to rewatch it again. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> this is completely off topic but have y'all ever watched it in like the actual chronological order it's very strange how oh, would you do that you would like watch a little part of t part two pause it watch part one and then like watch part like how would you watch it chronologically i think there was like um when we were in grad school um mm. vince had like some version um and he played like the chronological order of it so it starts with like a lot of scenes from Godfather 2 interwoven with Godfather 1 all the way to the end. It's very jarring and weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what is like the feeling of it? You can't quite... It, it doesn't work narratively, in my opinion, as well. So, 
Because hmm. like I feel like how how part one ends with like um Michael like achieving his status as Dawn is kind of like how it ends like with for Vito in the part two where like when we leave Vito he's kind of like he has his family he has all the stuff not successful um and I feel like that like makes sense as an ending for both films more than seeing Vito reach that before you would see Michael reach that versus like their parallel lives and you know forever forever trapped be the thing you know yeah. of Senator Corleone I was just reading about the ending of the the third movie because I guess it came out recently, right? Like a new cut of the really, yeah, where it like ends with uh, Michael, like living out to an old age, like sad about Sofia Coppola getting murdered, or and just like this idea of of him having like this long penance period of like mourning the death of his daughter or something like that. I don't know. Because I know, like, most people didn't like part three, and I'm like, that's fair. But I always, like, really liked the ending of part three, where he's, like, old and, like, Sicily and just falls off a chair. So you're saying that scene is different? Yeah, like, I think they just, like, end it with him. Yeah, I don't think they actually show him dying. Okay. Yeah, not falling off the chair. (laughs) But. Interesting. That is (laughs) um you like in your bio um you mentioned like uh doing like documentary work i'm wondering uh if you could like tell us a little bit more about um the stuff you've done yeah um so that kind of brought me out to the west coast too and um i yeah so the first projects i worked on um i worked on this one called mine which was about animal rescue after hurricane katrina um so and the the reason why or the thing i really loved about the project was that like it talked about um people like rebuilding their lives in um new orleans and how trying to get their pets back because there was a lot of like uh, people who rushed into the situation to like save animals and then adopted them out really quick and had some um, attitude around uh, whether people should get their animals back, if, whether they were good guardians for having left them. Um, so we um, focused on the like custody battles that were happening. Um, and it was really, I mean, this thing about like um, documentaries affecting <laughs> the outcome, everybody we were following got their animals back, um, but that was like not the case for a lot of people. So that was the first project that I, I um, worked on. And then I also worked on a project um, about um, a Palestinian um, like corner store owner who was uh, trying to get his family um, to be able to come over to the United States. And it was just this like um, decades long battle that he went through. Um, and then I worked on another project that was um, with a um, Chinese American um, director who um, wanted to do a documentary about white guys who um, get mail order <laughs> 
um, brides and from China and, and to explore that as a Chinese American person. Um, and then she ended up being the translator for this, this man and his new wife and like kind of like served as had like a relationship with them or was like a part of the their forming of their marriage, which was pretty interesting. Um, so yeah, I um, was just working in um, the Bay Area and all of these different um, sort of social issue documentaries. Um, and my role was in producing. So I've always done kind of like logistical um, work of like making interviews happen and um, doing the interview process. I really love interviewing. <laughs> um, and uh, more and more though, like my role was like getting to know people in the community and just, I wanted to do that. I wanted to be a part of the community. So I feel like my career has been like slowly getting rid of the film part and just keeping the, the community part and the relationship building part. So that's kind of like how that worked for me. Yeah. Um, and you've also done a lot of writing as well. Um, I, yeah. I'm curious about like what role writing plays in your current practice. Um, so. Yeah, well, I was kind of thinking about this beforehand. Um, I, uh, like my art origin story is that I um, was born to two like early 20s art kids. <laughs> like my parents were, my mom was getting her three bachelor's degrees in um, art history art education and philosophy and my dad was a journalism student um, and a drummer and they were just doing ridiculous young parent things like taking me to foreign films and concerts and stuff like that so I just feel like um, from a young age like uh, they were just you know we didn't have a lot of money but they just knew all of the like free days at the museums and all of the free things that were happening at the universities and at the libraries. Um, um, so we just were like constantly doing that and um, they were just, they're incredibly smart, creative people. Um, and so they really just, for me, gave me all of that like I was like dancing from a little from when I was really young and I was playing music and I was just always writing like always like um notebooks filled with it and like it's been an interesting process for me because I almost um feel like there's like the art you do in community with people um and then there's the art you do for yourself so I have like a very strong um practice of like writing to work out how I feel about things. Um, I uh, have a weaving practice, like I draw, like it's just uh, like the things that I kind of do to center myself or feel whole in myself or to like understand what's happening in my life. Um, so that's always been strong. And then like the pieces that I let out are kind of, I don't know, I have a weird relationship with it. Like some of it I like, some of it I wish I hadn't put out so soon. Like, um, so like I, I was really interested in um, music reviews. Those are some of the things that are like out in the public that you can read and um, just like, uh, 
right now I, I write poetry and it's mostly for myself because I feel like I'm developing a muscle. Um, and it's interesting to be around um, people are, who are published because I, I get really like um, starstruck by my, my colleagues <laughs> um, who I think are just more pro and then who are just also like amazingly humble around it. Like I just do it and that's how I've done it. You know what I mean? Like um, I love, I've, I've had a lot of poets in my life and I just love the way of um, looking at the world through kind of like an, uh, an experimental or curiosity vein or just trying to like get to something that's um, hard to verbalize. Um, yeah. So I guess I'd, I'd characterize my, my creative output as that, is it's like what I do for me and then the, then the kind of creative projects I do with other people and then the like, figuring out how the lines bleed <laughs> for like or what I show other folks. I'm a little secretive about my my making because it feels very personal but starting to like they're just like I'm just as, there's so many people I've gotten to know who I admire who are able to share it readily. Yeah. Um, my colleague Harper she will like actually um, read a poem to like perform a poem to workshop it like and see if it works like okay. in a public setting which I'm just blown away by like <laughs> that you can have like such like uh like what's the word you're not you're so unprecious about your work that you're able to just like be vulnerable enough to share it but like also take the input of like how it's reading to the audience to then go back and work on it more yeah. I just think that's so cool yeah, that is, and very brave. <laughs> very brave. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm much, much more, feel more comfortable, like, being in, in the place of, like, being, like, this person's art, amazing, you should go talk to them about their art than I am about myself. Like, I, I do want to just say, like, talking with you all, I'm a little starstruck again, because I just think your, your creative, creativity and your art making, I just love it so much. I admire it so much. And I, I wanted to ask about the, um, the yard show that you were a part of, cause that just sounded, the photos look so cool and just like curious about how that happened. Um, yeah, the Congress yard project, um, Ariana Jacobs and Mac McFarlane, um, co-curate um, Congress yard projects um, in their backyard um how did it happen i guess they've been doing it since quarantine started originally from what i understand um they started it as to like uh help bfas and mfas that weren't getting thesis shows to like have something some some sort of like a uh, consolation show um so i think that was their initial impetus um for that project but um since then it's like um gone on to other stuff and i think they're like being kind of like freeform with like how they're gonna like plan and stuff like that um, but yeah, so the show that I'm like a part of hard and soft, um, yeah, they just like asked me if I wanted to participate and, um, what I would want to show. And then they like kind of gave parameters about like something that could be, um, subject to the environment, to like nature, either like allow it to be, or like, you know, make it impervious to those things. Um, so yeah, like 12 artists, um, including myself, um, for a show that's been up since like January. I think it ends 
on Equinox, which is the 21st or the 20th. Um, one of the two. And then, um, yeah, so there sh- I think there should be a, a slate, a suite of events um, of, like, I think Julie Perini is going to be screening a video. Um, I think um, a couple other artists are doing stuff. And then um, I think I will actually, yeah, be doing a performance um, with Vo um, as well. I think we may be, like, kind of doing, like, a co-performance or more like a, a double feature. Um, kind of performance on the March like a 21st. Live performance? Wow. Yep, a live performance, Melanie. Gonna be out there in front of people. <laughs> and then um yeah, so so then yeah for my piece I did like a fabric thing and then there's like an audio component which doesn't show up in the pictures. Um and then there's like a light component or um I mean I guess all the all components are light components. But um there's like a light <laughs> that only is turned on at night um but yeah so that's kind of the, the gist cool i'm so interested in that idea like i've always thought it would be cool to do wheat pasting that is intended to like degrade when it rains that kind of like brings out other colors or other layers something like that so that kind of idea of art that's supposed to be outdoors um yeah that's so interesting yeah, no, I like it too, and I think it, like, I think about um what you're talking about idea earlier with um ideas around like art being precious, and um I think that's like a cool way to think about art too, um in a different like sense of preciousness, um, but yeah, but I also think think it's interesting too what you were saying about um being more secretive with your making, because uh, I think I really like appreciate that because I feel I feel like now, um, like artists are not supposed to be secretive with making like everything is supposed to be like Instagrammable and be like, Oh, here's my behind the scenes or like, here's everything I was thinking for this one thing. Or like, you know, we're supposed to like, um, give ourselves like, uh, what are like biopsies all the time. Um, and like expose like our practice and stuff like that. But I like this idea of, uh, still like wanting to be secretive of that. I was like, Oh no, that's not something that like you need to know about, or, um, I don't, I have to share about or feel compelled to share about. Um, and then just like one more point. <laughs> and then too, like I was thinking about, cause like um, with like in regards to performance art, that like same conversation around like knowing some like performance artists that um, the only time they they actually do performance or they actually like do work on their performance is when they're actually performing. Like, um, you know, Keon Gaskin, who we've had on the show recently, um, would always like speak to the same thing that like, um, when he like workshops this stuff it's like in front of an audience and that doesn't really have like a studio practice per se it's more like oh i have this idea like i'll be able to try this idea out the next time i'm in front of somebody um which i think is cool too like i think yeah it just like speaks to like a different way of making um but i also like yeah i think it like plays with the idea of like value and like preciousness and stuff in an interesting way i so admire people like that like that's not my my way but i so um I admire the bravery I think it takes to do that. Um, yeah. Uh, what was, I was going to say something to related to what you were, what you were saying. Um, just around like printmaking too, and just thinking about like how there's a certain amount of um, uh, experimenting and like taking away the preciousness when you're printmaking t- as well, like just the fact that sometimes the mistakes are what make it interesting or just the re- what happens when something is reproduced or um, 
yeah, I mean, I think like my creative practice has definitely been strengthened by like being around the IPRC and, and just like the seeing what people do, but then also just like really, really recognizing in a different way that like art making for me is a process more than it is like an end product, like just um, really leaning into the process of it. And that kind of like, it's hard sometimes when it's like that, because what you were saying, like, because I'm secretive, like, I don't think if someone wanted to, they'd be like, um, this like esteemed with all her work and blah, blah, blah. Cause I don't, I don't put it out. Um, <laughs> So like, like, I think for that kind of environment of like having um, all your shows and your list of your work, sometimes you're not allowed to be that secretive way. Um, but I don't know, it's, it's been a good thing for me to, to just look at it more of like um, a thing that I do for myself and then for the people um, in my life and the people I want to be in community with. Um, I'm really excited. This was shocking to me. I got, uh, got contacted by um, Rack. They were putting together like a collection of paper-based um, pieces and they like wanted to commission me to do something and I was like, I'm an art administrator. Are you sure you have the right person? <laughs> um, but they're like, no, no, we mean you. So like I just like was like, well, gosh, I had money to make something what would I want to make um so I'm working on a project now that's um it takes one of the photos from the George Floyd protests um on the Burnside Bridge um so I'm taking one of those photos and then I'm taking the page of the Oregon um constitution or the Oregon um territory treaty that said that black people weren't allowed um, to be in the territory. So I'm taking that page and the photo and I'm blowing them up big and I'm weaving them together, which I'm really excited about. And then I got permission from um, Elizabeth Woody, who's a poet here in, in Oregon, and Mike Capes, who's a rapper here in Portland, to take two quotes from um, them. And I'm gonna, they're gonna be two panels and I'm gonna stitch in red, um, like a big red, thread their um, quotes over the, um, especially the, the treaty part of it. So it obscures the treaty. Oh. So I'm working on that now and I'm really excited about it. Um, but that's the first, it's the first time that I'm like, all right, you're gonna buy something from me? Weird, <laughs> but yeah. Are you going to share documentation of that work? Yes, I am. And like, I, because it's such a, um kind of like a, a collaboration still like it's it's incorporating like um Andrew Walner who took the photo and then um Mike Capes and Elizabeth Woody like I want to ask them if I can like have it someplace where they those other collaborators can see it um because it'll feel very strange to just like do it and then give it over to Rack for whatever they want to do with it and yeah um yeah it's it's kind of a new stage and um my artistic practice that's nerve-wracking but really cool yeah <laughs> yeah hell yeah um, um you we kind of like already um you already talked about like your hong kong fulbright but um i didn't realize until um you know like reading about you and like looking at your bio and stuff that you were also a pnca graduate graduate yeah. at um melanie and i um we actually met and started mtp 
um, at our time. That's I think. so cool. Yeah. What years were you there? 20, we graduated 2017. So we were there 2015 to 2017 from the visual studies program. Awesome. Um, you're yeah, from CR, right? Yes. Um, yeah, the critical theory and creative research program. And I was um, in the, the last year at the old building. So 2014. Ah. Um, yeah, it was a, it, it was a little different, um, the program from what it is now. Um, yeah, I think they um, took it in some really good ways. Yeah. Is there anything particularly memorable about your time at PMCA? Um, yes, I mean, it was a really awesome experience in that, like, I learned how to, um, I learned to argue for my ideas <laughs> in a way that, like, I had never been forced to before. I, um, we did, had to do two uh, Pecha Kuchas, or we're, like, um, pr presenting our talk in 20 slides um, and um, it, like just talking about our research and then there would be like um, 15, 20 minutes of just answering questions. And I just remember the first time I had to do it, the answering question part was just like horrifying, like um, just um, all of my um, public speaking nerves just uh, were so intense. And so like for the second, um part of uh or like the second uh talk i had to give i really like prepared myself for the answering question part and just like thought about like any possible question i could be could be asked and um also really got myself comfortable with saying like i don't know <laughs> if i didn't like not to just like bullshit but to be like i don't know i'd really i need to look into that more um and it went wonderfully and was so fun actually so I think like um just that um ability to uh like spend a long time with one idea and um and but also like be humble enough to be like um I don't know something and I need to find out more about it and just coming at it from like a a, a standpoint of curiosity rather than um expertism like I think that was what I took out of my program that I I've like use daily and I think has been like um any effectiveness I've had in my job has been <laughs> because of that kind of quality of just like um being curious about like how to make something work um and uh, open to making mistakes and kind of growing from them and figuring stuff out with people. Um, I also think I just met some really awesome people in my program too who are doing cool things and just like I continue to look at their their work to like inform what I want to do and learn how I think about things and um, then also just like all the people who went there at different points like there's so many interesting cool people who are like just like spread all over Portland like um doing amazing things like I, I just think about you both and then um also like I think more recent just um two of the artists and residents from this past year like um Laura and Angela and like just how they look at making um art making and I think they were both PNCA students and um and there is sort of like um something you were saying before 
uh, Max about uh, <laughs> Michael Corleone and the naivete of changing the game. Like, I think like um, there was almost like this uh, reverse thing that happened just from going to grad school and like having to have that rigor and like that intensity that sort of like made me feel comfortable with being naive and being like, well, I'm going to pretend this doesn't apply and I'm just going to figure out how to make it go differently. You know what I mean? Um, just this like, understanding. I don't know. I just like, I really have an urge to want to understand things. And um, then once I have a, like, I feel comfortable enough about understanding them, try to figure out how to mess them up or make them different or make them better. Um, so I think that came from my period in grad school too. Yeah. How was it for you all? Oh, um, Max, do you want to go first on that? Yeah. Um, I met Melanie, so it was great. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> answer. Same. same. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, uh, I, I approached it as like a laboratory. So. Yeah in watching how my work um, is received and figuring out what, what did work and what didn't work. So in that way, it was successful for me. Um, and then I also, I met a lot of amazing artists, like you said, like who are from my program, who are from other programs, some of the faculty. So it was a, for me, it was a once in a lifetime um, opportunity that I've used to sort of um, get me to the places where I wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it, it's expensive. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the student debt debts are crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't really and, think about that. So <laughs> I try not to. I, I think I've been ignoring that part as yeah. well. <laughs> but yeah. So maybe like a little bit of like trying to figure out how to how to bring that into or like level of curiosity and and care into something that's a little more affordable. Yes, there's, a, there's, a, there's this thing where like I, I, I would liken it, uh, I guess, a little bit, even though I feel like this may be a crude comparison to survivor's guilt with graduate school, because like, <laughs> I had the privilege and the ability to like apply to this thing and get into this place that afforded me a kind of professional um, clout that I have now, right? Um, it also put me in the right places to learn how to write grants, how to get funding for things. But mm -hmm. the fact that I had to drop all of this hypothetical money to do that, um, don't feel great about that. And also like, it makes me think about all the other people who are just as brilliant or just as talented as me and my cohort who don't have that privilege and like what it would what what would it take or what would it mean to be able to kind of like export that privilege in some way and get it into the hands of other people i don't know yeah i think yeah. um yeah i definitely think the access to resources um i think yeah it's like so wild i think it seems like um so random about like what a school can provide like during the time you're there because you know I feel like things are always shifting like professors are like coming and going so I also think another like benefit that like 
Melanie, I think I still boo hoo from definitely, and like NTP does. I'm, you know, um, to this day, somebody is like also like meeting Sharita Town. Um, we yeah. talked about Sharita, yeah. um, but I feel like we to this day, um, still learning from Sharita and um, going back to my Godfather references. Definitely, I feel like is a Michael Corleone <laughs> moving around. Making <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure but, that Sharita oh, yeah. would be thrilled to hear that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and like as a direct result of going to grad school, like I for a while had it in my mind that that debt was real. So I was like went into the corporate world for a little bit to try and like pay some of that off Um, and like planned events for Microsoft and just saw like the way that um, like how much they're given to like be good at their jobs. Like how they're just like all these like perks and like it's just thrown at them and um i just realized i don't know i i had like a really brilliant coworker who like one day was talking about them like the microsoft people as if they were just like genius is better than us in every way you know what i mean and i was like yeah some of them are really smart but some of them are just got where they are because they were lucky and um so i think that was like also a direct thing after seeing that i was like what what if i was able to give that kind of like generosity in spirit and like the resources i have and any skills i've learned in my life to the people i actually want to give them to like to artists and creative people and activists and people who i think are making a big impact on my community and so I think that that was another like part of why I wanted to go to the IPRC and wanted to do the work that I'm doing now is because like yeah just the things that you're given when you have wealth or clout or a, a, a title that you know is really out of luck a lot of the time and then um one other i have, yeah one more question i have for you um we don't want to yeah. take yeah. up all your time yeah. but, um, <laughs> that's okay it's really fun talking with you <laughs> <laughs> um at ntp we do pride ourselves on doing our homework and stuff so um i was reading some of your <laughs> articles and um yeah i'm curious if you could speak a little bit to your relationship and connection to like afrofuturism from your youth yeah. than even like now like um nowadays yeah, I mean, I think I could connect it a lot with my dad, and um, I don't know, sometimes in my role now, I think, I, like, I was thinking I could distill it to, like, wanting to give, or thinking about, um, thinking about it as wanting to create the supports and opportunities I wish my young artist parents had, um, and just, uh, I think um, Afrofuturism was a lot in connection with my dad and my relationship with him um like he was always playing um Sun Ra and Grace Jones and um so those were that was music that I grew up with so I feel like this kind of like um otherworldly (laughs) um amazing gender bendy like um outer space wild persona was something that I like got to see um as a young person and was really um, influential on me or had a big, big impact on me. And also um, just on how I thought about gender and like gender identity and um, like I, I identify as bisexual. And I think kind of this 
um, this combining of like gender fluid, uh, masculine, feminine, gender fluidity. I think I, um, I identify that first with Grace Jones and seeing her when I was really young. Um, and I feel lucky that I had that. And then um, in early 20s, just really um, getting into Octavia Butler's writing and more recently into N.K. Jemisin and just this sort of like, I, I've always kind of been interested in sci-fi. Um, and so uh, for a period Afrofuturism felt like this kind of like exploratory and open way of looking at um, the future. I think um, there are other things that speak to me now more but for a period of time um yeah afrofuturism just the art that was created under that label um was influential for me yeah i love also um melanie just reading about your piece of the the newspaper that um imagines the obituary ob obituaries of um people who have been killed by the police but um, as if they had lived their lives out. Um, like I, I see that as kind of an Afrofuturist project. I don't know if you would cl classify it as that, but just like um, maybe um, Afrofuturisms that are closer to home and less in outer space are more interesting to me. Um, there's a, I can't believe I'm forgetting her name, but there's an artist who um, she like builds, um, cabins and then she'll she has a character who um travels throughout time in the past and in the future and so she um creates objects and that just are in this cabin um from the past and the future um and just that kind of idea of like the objects of a of a life of that spans back backwards and forwards is really interesting to me too in art um yeah uh, I think there's also someone who talks about um, mundane Afrofuturism hmm. uh, and that kind of, or this idea that like there are problems to fix on earth um, yeah. and thinking about a future that fixes those problems <laughs> rather um, than it goes off to space. Like um, that's, that's been pretty interesting to learn about for me. Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> we are, we're, we're going on like, we're a little bit over time. So I think Afrofuturism is a good place to close out. Um, <laughs> yeah, all the editing work you all have, I'm sorry. Oh no, that's fine. Um, so we're going to close out with our segments um, and then parting words. So uh, it's time for me to do Celie's glass of water. What oh, Mr. Talking Trash about sugar. Folks don't like nobody being too proud or too free. Uh, a special shout out for the folks who are doing the most with not even the least. So today's glass is a general one aimed in the direction of the capital. Once upon a time, not so long ago, promises were made. Bare minimum promises of $2,000 stipends and $50,000 student loan forgiveness quickly administered vaccines and a chance at being a contender for countries that actually have a sliver of a modicum of compassion for its citizens. But alas, here we are, as we roll through this great unknown that is 2021, we see that the parameters of these promises keep getting pushed back. 
Now it's $1,400, not $2,000. And it's $10,000 in student loan forgiveness, which quite frankly is a pebble in an ocean for the lot of us. I'm still trying to figure out when I can get a vaccine after a full year of self-quarantine as of a week from now. Meanwhile, the clock keeps ticking while the fools on the hill continue to argue and none of us have gotten any damn thing yet. I'm tired, you're tired, we're all tired. What's going on, Joe? Where the hell is our money, Joe? Where is it? Until they do right by us Americans, ain't no good can come to any of them. And that's all I've got. Oh yeah. <clears throat> Just the facts with Max. I'm stating facts, 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 facts. The Mekong or Mekong River is a transboundary river in East Asia and Southeast Asia. It is the world's 10th longest river and the 6th longest in Asia, winding almost 3,000 miles from the Tibetan Plateau down, the, down to the South China Sea. The Mekong River boasts the world's largest inland fishery. I'm stating facts, 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 facts. All right, so now it's time for parting words. Um, Max, you first. Um, yeah, for my first parting words, um, I feel like my most recent times, I've been um, a poor host, and I forgot to first and foremost um, thank you to our our guests. Thank you, Allie, for being here. Thank you so much for um, taking time to talk with us, to answer our questions, to um, be generous, and um, to yeah, share about yourself. It was great learning about you and talking with you. I had so much fun. Um, so yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for uh, being a guest on Who All Gonna Be There. Um, I feel like we have so many podcasts now to remember which titles, which. Um, so yeah, thank you for being a guest on Who All Gonna Be There. Um, yeah, it's been fun. And then um, my shameless, my shameless segment, um, mobile projection unit, Portland Art Museum. I'll be part of a group screening March 26th. Um, get at me. Um, or like just go to the event. Um, <laughs> a Paragon, um, our gallery, um, May through June. Um, I'll be part of a three-person show with Delisa Johnson and Sarah Brahim. So check out for that. Keep your calendars on that. Do all the stuff you need to do to know about it. And then as I previously mentioned, um, Cong Congress Yard Projects um, is closing March 21st um, with a closing performance by myself and Vo. And then um, there may be some androids in the tower news for 2021. So, y'all, that's it, y'all. <laughs> All right, um, I'll go next. So again, thank you, Allie, for coming and speaking to us about your work and your practice. Um, I feel like I've learned so much, even though I've known you for some time. <laughs> so this is just really fun. It was really just fun to sit and talk with you um, and, you know, shoot the shit about things that we never really got a chance to talk about. So thank you for giving us your time um, and being so generous um, about your work. Um, since Max has gotten into the habit, I guess I'll do a shameless plug too. Um, Watershed Volume 2. Um, ostensibly coming out late March, who knows? We'll see. Um, but, um, um, also, I am uh, doing a couple of commission pieces for Rack, some digital portraiture. Um, and my focus was um, Black Portland artists. So I will be doing digital por portraits of um, a name that was mentioned during this episode, Gita Lewis is one of them. 
So that will be coming out in April. So. And we give the final word to Allie. Yay, shameless plug. Um, we're, uh, we have the call for proposals for our third residency program are out right now. So um, definitely um, want to encourage people to uh, apply for that. Um, exciting new things, hopefully. Um, and this isn't something that's happening, but just thinking, Melanie, if you ever want to do uh, a show of this, your scroll, um, I know we talked about this, like making that happen. So I still, I still want to yes the answer to that is yes so. yeah. <laughs> cool awesome thank you thank okay, you thank you around the time um that the pandemic hit portland so around march 15th of 2020 the iprc uh closed and we closed pretty much until um, July or August. Um, we were still doing online classes and Instagram readings and different events like that. Um, but we were mostly closed for operations. Um, but we just were hearing a lot about how community members still really wanted to be using the studio safely and that a lot of people you know, uh, supplement their incomes by the things that they make at the IPRC. So we started looking into um, how we could, along state requirements, um, begin to let people use the studio. Um, and a lot of it at first was just our um, artists in residence and um, our certificate program students um, and uh, existing members using um, the studio. Uh, but we've slowly um, allowed for uh, new members to also use um, the studio as well. And what we've landed on is um, offering appointments, scheduled times. Um, appointments are usually around three hours. Um, we have only two to three people in the studio space at a time, so there, there can be distance. Um, and everyone's masked, and you're required to answer um, the state questions around um, COVID uh, safety uh, before you're even allowed to be in the in the studio um, and it's been working really well so far um, that we're able to have let people have access to the space while also making sure that um, everyone's safe and then we've also um, where we can um, have transitioned over to online classes and um, some of what we've done is we've had um, supply kits that we send out to people um, if that's necessary for them to do the class like that'll be necessary for book arts cla classes or um, classes where you're learning um, graphic design. We've sometimes um, offered uh, laptop rentals. Um, and then we're also doing just all of our creative um, writing classes on mostly Zoom, but we've done a couple of things over Instagram as well or over Facebook. Um, and, you know, it's been a really kind of cool experience to have people from across the country being able to participate in our programs this way. Um, and we've found that we've been selling out most of our programs and we've been exploring how to have like uh, less expensive programming that way too. So we did like a tax preparation for creatives workshop um, that was only um, 10 to $15. And um, we had two of them because they sold out and, and exploring ways of like um, having videos um, after the fact for people to access as well.
Um, and then like the last thing that we've done is we've had, um, printing that we've done for, um, organizers, um, mostly BIPOC organizers. Um, so we will occasionally take on, um, print jobs for community members, which isn't something that we used to do as much.